Welcome to the Calvary Lake Ozark Message Podcast. Wherever you are tuning in from today, we hope that you're challenged and encouraged by today's message. If you'd like more information about Calvary Lake Ozark, visit calvarylakeozark.com. Good morning. Hope all is well. We are continuing our study in Philemon. So if you have your Bibles, want to turn there again. Uh, it's right before Hebrews, just a one-pager. Um, as we're turning, I have a few announcements that I just need to go over so everybody knows what's uh, going on here around Calvary. A couple things. It is getting colder. <clears throat> Don't ask my opinion about the cold. Let's just accept it. We live in Missouri. It happens. But uh, with the cold weather comes snow, ice, and some dangerous weather at times. And we want you to know if we're having service or not. And one of the easiest ways is we try to blast it onto our social media. But if you would text the word snow, S-N-O-W, just in case anybody didn't know how to spell it. Um, there we go, just being kind. Uh, if you text the word snow to 573-294-2223, that's our telephone number here that you can call. But also if you text that word to the word snow to that number, it puts you in a, like a text group. And the only time we use it, we're not going to ask you for more money. We're not going to ask you. The only time we use that text group is to let you know if we are canceling service due to weather. Obviously, where we live, most likely it's going to be because of snow. And so uh, we try to send that out as early. We know snow is coming uh, here in the next few weeks. So be praying as the wrath of God lays over. No, that's snow to me. That's how I view snow. But you can text that. Uh, a couple other things. It is the Christmas time. And so we have a couple Christmas parties that are coming up. And every one of you um, are allowed to go to one of these two parties. You can't go to both, but you can go to one of two. First off, women. Um, don't let me define, don't make me define that. We all understand, right? Women, your Christmas party is December 9th. That is a Friday night, 6 to 8 p.m. And you are at the POA at Four Seasons. Never been there. So that's where you're at. So ladies, 6 to 8 p.m., December 9th. That is a Friday. Uh, there's more information on the website and on the app. Or you can talk to Taylor, Barb, uh, one of those ladies, tell you more about the Christmas party. There's that. Now the rest of you, men, the next day, set, yeah, they, thank you, one person's excited, there we go. Men, Christmas breakfast, and so by breakfast we just mean bacon, right? Okay, let's just get that out of the way. Men's Christmas breakfast is December 10th at 8 a.m. here at Calvary. Uh, if you've never been to one of these, I really encourage you to go. Guys, I know that's probably, oh, I don't want to wake up early on a Saturday and go hang out. It really is a great time, and I highly, highly encourage you and recommend for you to go to it. You'll want to get like a 10, 15, whatever dollar gift something hunting, fishing, a lot of times it's knives and tools and whatever it is, and we play this crazy gift exchange game, and it's a lot of fun, and so bring one of those. Uh, we always go at Black Friday when Menards has all their deals, and that's when I get my men's Christmas breakfast gift, and so sorry you missed Black Friday on that, but catch up, grab you a gift, be here Saturday morning, 8 o'clock. Again, if you have any questions, come talk to any of the guys. You could talk to Matt Hunter, uh, Aaron Knapp, those guys in charge of men's ministry, and we would love to have you for that. There we go. All right, back into Philemon. This is our second week that we are in uh, this short book, and so we are just going to pick it up only at verse 8 
Um, and we're going to read to the end of like 21, just kind of the, the main chunk of it. So we get through the, you know, the welcomes, the hey, hellos, how you doings, uh, and then also talking about Philemon a little bit. But picking up verse 8, Paul is writing a very personal letter here. A lot of times Paul wrote to churches, and so this is a very personal letter that he wrote. And so he's speaking directly to this individual named Philemon. And Paul says, accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus whose father I became in my imprisonment. So to catch you up on the story, if you're wondering, like, how do you become somebody's father in prison? Like, I didn't know the rules there. He led Onesimus to the Lord. He's his spiritual father. And so formerly, formerly, this is Onesimus he's talking about, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but out of your own accord. Because if it was out of compulsion, it wouldn't be goodness anymore. It would just be obedience. For this is perhaps why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as bondservants, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, your partner, receive him as you would receive me. And if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. And I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me even your own self, saying, hey, I brought you to the Lord. If anybody owes anybody, shouldn't you owe me? Because Paul most likely brought Philemon to the Lord. Verse 20, yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. Let's stop there this morning. And so the second uh, part of Philemon here that we're talking about, if you, if you weren't here last week, highly recommend to catch you up on the story. But Onesimus, runaway slave, stole from Philemon. Philemon is his master and they lived in Colossae. Philemon was a leader in the church there. So Onesimus one day just wakes up and says, you know what, I've had enough of it. He steals whatever, obviously something financial, and leaves and he heads to Rome where he somehow comes across Paul in prison and he comes to faith. Paul leads him to the Lord and now Onesimus is saved. And so how he once stole from someone, now he is giving of himself and he is serving Paul by serving Christ in Paul's ministry. Now there's a moment of redemption. There's a moment of reconciliation because Paul knows Philemon and now he knows Onesimus. And these two are obviously at odds. And he is sending Onesimus back to Philemon, most likely with this very letter, as well as the letter of Colossians that we just studied before Philemon. And he's asking, hey, receive him back. And if he owes you anything because of what he stole from you, I'll pay it back. 
and Paul wrote this with his very own hand, which is uh, kind of interesting. A lot of times he used someone who would write his letters and he would just speak it. Some people wonder in his old age if he couldn't see well or what, maybe his handwriting. Have you ever seen an old person's handwriting? My grandpa had the worst handwriting in the world, but he always signed cards and it's like, I can't read it, but I love that you signed it. Thank you. And so probably had somebody else writing letters, but here Paul is like, I, w- I want to stress this so much, I'm going to write it with my own hand. And so he's almost writing this IOU to Philemon, saying if Onismus, on account of Onismus, if he owes you anything, I'll pay it. I owe you for that. Don't hold that debt against Onismus. Hold that debt against me, and I'll pay it and pay it in full. I want you to receive Onismus back, not just as a, uh, a bondservant that has settled up his debts, but I want you to receive him back as a brother in the flesh and in the Lord. See, what I love about Philemon, even though there is no uh, doctrine of theology or doctrine of God taught specifically, I think it's lived out. And that's the title of the sermon this morning, the gospel in real life. And so we're going to see this real life portrayal of the gospel. And we have these three characters, and we're going to look at these three characters and how they live out the gospel And we're going to use it to look at even our own lives and how the gospel should be lived out and applied to us through Christ. So Onesimus is playing the part of sinners, us. We all are some Onesimuses right here. Or is it Onesimai? I don't know what the plural is of Onesimus, but go with it. Philemon is playing the part of God the Father. And then Paul is playing the part of God the Son, Jesus Christ. And one of the things that... uh, that can happen in the church when we can struggle, right? Let's be honest about it. To understand the fullness of our salvation. We struggle with that as believers sometimes. Maybe even doubt hits us and we ask the question, am I really saved? Or if we're looking at somebody else that we care about and okay, they've been coming to church for a while or they say some okay kind of good things, are they really saved? How do we engage that? How do we understand that? Because we all know that at the beginning of our walk with the Lord, the moment we became saved, our knowledge of Jesus, let's just be honest, was pretty low. Kind of like in marriage. I know more about my wife today than I did 17 years ago when we stood on a little platform like this and we said the little I do's. We grew in our knowledge. And the same thing with the Lord. What I knew of Jesus when I wanted to give my life to him was very little. Salvation to me was... He takes my sin, I don't go to hell, I go to heaven because of my faith in him. That's good reason, that's good reason. And some people struggle with that. They're like, oh, that's just fire insurance. Don't you have insurance on your stuff? That's a good reason to wanna go to heaven as I don't wanna go to hell. Other people, you know, it, it connects with them that they want to be in heaven and what that understanding, those are good reasons. But a lot of times we can struggle with, oh, they don't know the fullness of salvation, so are they really saved? Can I just say, like, we all don't know the fullness of salvation, that even the holy man on the stage doesn't know the fullness of salvation, that we are all in process and learning, and that's the beautiful thing about our salvation, is not only that we are saved, that God is continuing revealing to us what the fullness of what we did is. Again, like when I got married and standing there looking across this little gap holding the hands of a beautiful girl, I never thought the fullness of what this relationship was going to be. She was hot and I didn't want to lose her, right? Want to get married? Absolutely. 
but to talk about what this relationship was gonna be. I had no context for that. And every day I grew in my knowledge. I didn't become more married to her. I was married at day one. I was fully in love with her in day one. But how can we be fully in love and then our love grows? That's the paradox of the Bible, that we can be in love with Jesus and he loves us and we grow in that. Well, how can we be fully in love with Jesus and still let it grow? Welcome to the paradox of scripture, and I love it. And so we're gonna walk through some different aspects of what salvation is, because there's some different words that we use, there's different, there's different facets and uh, aspects of it, and sometimes we use different languages of it, so some people might take more of a, 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 not a legalistic, but more of a legal terminology about it, others might think more relationally about it, some might look at the sin aspect, and all are good but all are needed for it. Now, there's gonna be certain ones that hit you and impact you the most, and I think that is good. Just like there's certain things about Jesus that impact us differently, and that's all okay. Like, I have four kids, right? I have one boy, three girls, all different ages, and they're all different. And I connect with them, and they connect with me in different ways. And what one daughter can't do to the other daughter is to say, oh, this is how I connect with dad. We play music together and we sing. That's how we connect with dad. Or another daughter, no, I connect with dad by playing card games and, and Barbies and stuff like that. And then the son's like, well, can I not connect with dad? No, no, no. They all live under the house rules, but how they connect to the father is in different ways. And so the same aspect for us in Jesus, same aspect in our salvation we're all under the house rules, right? Can't break the house rules. But we connect to the Father. We connect to Jesus in different ways. And so when we use this term salvation, I'm gonna give you like the theological definition of it, and then we're gonna look broadly in using these three characters to try to pull out more understanding and meaning. So the basic understanding of salvation refers to the process by which God, through the work of Christ, delivers sinners, us, from the prison of sin. And there's three stages to this. First, there's justification. And this is far more a legal declaring, right? So when you stand before the court and they say not guilty, that really doesn't change who you are. That just changes your legal standing. And so because of our faith in Jesus, when we make that, put our faith in Jesus, he declares us justified, just as if we never sinned. He declares us not guilty. I'm still the same dirty, rotten sinner. But for some reason, because of my faith, God looks at me and says, not guilty. That is justification, stage one. And then we start this process called sanctification. Right? So at justification, I'm released from the penalty of sin. I am not guilty. Now sanctification. This is a process that we as believers are all in. Some of us a little farther down the road than others, and that's okay. And some of us, there's different things that God wants to work in us before others. And so we're not even going to walk through the same doors at the same time, because again, we're all different. And how our relationship with the Lord is, is different. But sanctification is the process of being released from the power of sin. So we've already been released from the penalty. We're not guilty. But now we're going to be released from the power of sin. That we'll have victory over the world. We'll have victory over our flesh that we have victory over the devil. 
And so this is, this is our life now as believers, sanctification, that we want to become more and more like Christ and keep growing in him. And none of us are going to be perfectly sanctified. There's a couple, uh, you know, far spectrum ideas that, oh, we could be perfectly sanctified this side of death. Nope. So if you're eight or 108, if you're alive and you've given your life to Jesus, you're still in the process of sanctification, even me. That's one of the hardest things of being a pastor is I'm smack dab in the middle of my own sanctification, that there's things about me that are unbecoming, not as a pastor, but as a Christian, that God is still working in my life. I need to go to men's breakfast just as the same reason all men need to go to men's breakfast. I need fellowship with like-minded believers. And, and even though I lead in some of the ministries of the church, doesn't mean I'm outside of them. I need the ministries of the body of Christ just like everybody else. Because again, we're all smack dab in the middle of our sanctification, being released from the power of sin. And then the day that we take our last breath and breathe in that first breath in the presence of God to be absent from the body, present with the Lord, that is glorification. So salvation, the third part. Now we're released from the presence of sin. There's no more sin, no more death, no more pain, that we are with Christ. And that's glorious. That's what we want. That is what we're shooting for. That's our hope, is to be with Christ and be glorified with him. That is a basic outlining of what salvation is. But there's other words that you might see like, well, what is redemption then? What does that look like? And this is where we're going to get into these three characters and how this works. So redemption, it means to redeem from the marketplace of sin, to purchase our salvation. Now, we can't purchase it. There's nothing that we can bring to God to say, hey, can I buy that salvation right there? Do I just put the quarters in the, you know, the little snack machine and hit A4 and you watch your salvation drop and hopefully it doesn't get stuck and you know what I mean? Or if you shake it, you get two. Don't do that. That's stealing. Revelation 5.9 says, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll. So they're singing to Jesus. They're talking about Jesus in their song. Worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed the people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. That, that Jesus went to the cross to pay the debt that we owed. Now, again, some people kind of uh, uh, trip over this. Well, who was Jesus paying? Who is indebted? There's some that would believe, oh, Jesus paid Satan so that we could get released from hell. No, Satan wasn't indebted because of sin. The debt was against God because of our sin. So Jesus was paying the debt that we owed to God. And this is what Paul is saying to Philemon about Onesimus. That when he says, hey, if he has wronged you at all, or if he owes you anything, charge that to my account, and I will repay it. And Jesus is looking at us because of the love of the Father that he has for the whole world. And even though there is the sin of the world, he says, the sin that they put a debt against you, put that on me, and I'll pay it. That's what the cross is all about is that Jesus paid the debt that we could not pay, that he became sin to pay for it. That's why at the cross when he says, it is finished, to telestai, 
That is a word that we see on ancient manuscripts in this era when there was debts and loans out, that if it was paid in full, that's what tetelestai means, that that debt is paid in full. So Jesus is talking about the debt that we've incurred because of our sin, and he says, I will repay it, and he did at the cross. It is paid in full. And so we are redeemed by the price that Jesus paid was to God. And now, just a side note, there's a nice big fat theological word called propitiation. And so what that means is that the the offering to repay it, God had to accept that. So if I was in debt to someone, okay, so let's say I borrowed 20 bucks from Josiah. Thank you for the $20, I needed that, right? Now I have to repay him. Now, instead of the $20, I could say, hey, uh, I could repay you the $20 by making you chocolate chip cookies. Now, he could say yes or no. Is that an acceptable payment for the debt that I owe? See, propitiation is not just the offering that Christ had on the cross, but it's the Father saying that is an acceptable payment for the debt God the Father had to accept Christ on the cross. And so when he's the propitiation, Jesus satisfied, that was a satisfactory payment for the debt that we owe. Does that make sense? Because Josiah could say, no, I don't want chocolate chip cookies. I want this. This would be an acceptable way to pay back the debt. Again, a lot of people in that time died on a cross. A lot of people were nailed to a cross. But why was it only Jesus? Why was his death? an acceptable atonement for the debt that we owed, for the sin on us, because he was the perfect, sinless lamb of God. Everybody else nailed to a cross was a sinner, was a blemished lamb, but Jesus was the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. His death was the only thing that would satisfy the debt. And so, and that's why the resurrection is such a huge importance in our faith is because that is the visible thing that we have, that we base our faith on, that our sin is paid for because God rose Jesus from the grave. So that is redemption. And then you might hear words like mediation, that Christ is our mediator. First Timothy 2, 4, and 5 says, God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved, put that in your theological pipe and smoke on that for a little bit, all people to be saved, that is God's heart, and to come to the knowledge of the truth, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, that is the man, Christ Jesus. See, he's this mediator. He is a priest, prophet, and king, and that's what we're talking about, because like in the Old Testament, there were prophets and priests. And a prophet would represent God and speak on God's behalf to people. And a priest would represent us, us people, to God. They were the mediators. But we're not under that law anymore. Why? Because we have Jesus Christ, who is our mediator between us and God. And so Christ represents God to us. And so in a sense, Paul is representing Philemon to Onesimus and Onesimus to Philemon. You hear some hintings of it. He says, if you consider me a partner, he's looking at Philemon and saying that. Hey, we're together in this. And so he's, he's acting like Jesus being a partner with God. Like, hey, we're together in this. And Jesus talked about that a lot. I and the Father are one. 
And if you consider me a partner, this is how we need to address Onesimus. But in the same breath, he turns to the other side and identifies with Onesimus and says, receive him as you would receive me. So here is Paul playing this mediator role between Philemon and Onesimus and representing each to each other because he is that mediator between them. Christ is our one and only mediator between us and God, meaning you don't have to come to the bald guy to approach the Lord, that my prayer for you isn't any stronger than your prayer for one another. And that happens. Like at the old church I was at, there was like seven or eight of us pastors, and I was the youngest by like 12 years, right? The rest of them, old and crusty, absolutely. And they're probably watching. You're welcome. And there would be somebody in our congregation going into surgery, and hey, Nick, are you available? Yeah, I'll go to the hospital. I'll go pray with them. And I'd walk in there, and what are you doing here? Well, you're getting ready to get cut open, and we're going to pray over you that the doctor doesn't have butterfingers. I don't know, you know, don't want him to mess up feel like it's a good reason to pray. And one time this uh, <clears throat> individual looked up at me and said, oh, okay, I just thought a real pastor would come. Good, because I'm going to give you a fake prayer, woman. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I prayed for her. But a lot of times we think that, like, oh, we need the holy man. And we have that holy man myth that for some reason I'm closer to God and he hears my prayer, but he doesn't hear you. No, there's one mediator. And now I'm not trying to poke and prod at other Christian denominations, but others try to bring other mediators that, oh, maybe this person is a better mediator to God. No, Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. And then you might hear words like regeneration, or if you remember in John 3, it talks about being Nicodemus, you need to be born again. Regeneration, you need to be born again. And there's hints of this in verse 11. He's talking about Onesimus, and his, and his name literally means useful. And, but because he stole from you, Philemon, and he ran away, that was a useless bondservant. But now because of his faith in Christ, he is useful. That he's been brought back to life, in a sense. That he's been born again. And so this regeneration, born again, means we were dead in sin, but made alive by God through our faith. And so we're all in Onesimus. At one point in our life, we were useless. We were children of wrath, but because of our faith in Jesus, we were now made alive to God. We were made useful. We even use that term. You'll hear me say it every once in a while. We want to be a useful vessel in God's hands, that we are tools. We are his, Ephesians would say, his workmanship, that he wants to use us to bring about his will, to show his heart, to show his plan to the world that he's not going to work around us, he's going to work through us, even as teenagers, kids, even as non-teenagers, and a little bit further down the road of life, that we are useful vessels in God's hands. Why? Because we've been regenerated, we've been born again. And then he talks about adoption. This is another aspect of our salvation. Again, the, all these terms apply to all of us. And so adoption, meaning placing as a son, that when we adopt a kid, we are placing them as our child. And Romans 8, 14 to 16 says, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. 
For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And this spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So in our faith, we don't become servants of God. We're, we're not just the low man on the totem pole. We're co-heirs with Christ. We are considered children. Understand the family relationship that God has because of our salvation. And so this is the act of God that places us, because of our faith, into his family. That's what our salvation brings about us. And so we see this with Onesimus. He kind of hints at it, not sonship, but at least that family component for perhaps why he parted you for a while that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than that, as what? A beloved brother. So all of us, because of our faith in Christ, we have family all over the world. That when we walk up to another Christian, because of our mutual faith in Christ, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. The early church understood this and lived this out in very practical ways. That's where the fish symbol came about. Because hotels and inns and different things like that were horrible to stay at. They were very dangerous. And so Christian hospitality, that if you were on a journey as a Christian and you were looking for somewhere safe to stay, every once in a while you would see a fish symbol on a house. And they were telling you, I'm a believer as well, that you could just walk up to a random house, fish symbol, knock on the door, like, hey, we are mutually, we are brothers, sisters in Christ because of our mutual faith in Christ. Can I stay here? Absolutely. Understand that the next time you wear that fish symbol. What you are trying to communicate to the world is not your identity, but your availability to serve others in our life. Can you imagine just somebody walking up to your door and saying like, hey, I, I saw you have this like little uh, fish symbol or you have this Christian, you have a cross out in your front yard. Can I stay here tonight? I'm a Christian too. Hey, yeah, right. Like we see criminal minds happening right there. That's an episode I've seen of law and order. Like I know what's going to happen. You can go right down to the Holiday Inn and you get out of here with that. But that's what it was. That we have this adoption, not just as sons to the father, but as brother and sister to one another. And then you hear words like reconciliation, which means to bring together. That God is not reconciled to us, Right? We're reconciled to God. It's kind of like the story of a, a married couple where when they were young and married, he had a truck and he would drive and she would always sit right next to him in the middle seat, right? And then the years kind of go on and they, you know, kind of maybe grow out of that love where it's the butterflies. And one day they're riding down the road and she looks over and she goes, you remember when we used to just snuggle up and sit right next to each other when we were in the truck? He says, yeah, but it's not me that moved he's still driving, that she's the one that doesn't sit right. And so God doesn't move in this. He's not reconciled to us. We're reconciled to him. Colossians 1, 21 and 22. And you who were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That Jesus, because of what he did, the finished work of the cross, he reconciles us to God. And so you see the same kind of verbiage right here with Paul and Onesimus and Philemon. Paul tells Philemon, I'm sending him back to you. 
He doesn't write Philemon and says, hey, you need to come to Rome so you can be reconciled to Onesimus. No, we're sending the alienated party back to him. And so the same way, God does not move in relation to the sinner, but the sinner moves in relation to him. And even in verse 15, he says, so that you would have him back forever. Understand that our salvation, we are reconciled to God so that he could have us back forever. That our salvation is secure. And then you have terms of forgiveness, to remit one's sins, that God cannot forgive without atonement. Again, something has to be paid. When there's a debt, God can't just wink his eye and say, ah, you don't owe me, don't worry about it. You know, so if I borrowed that 20 from Josiah, he can't say, ah, don't worry about it. No, that debt needs to be paid. For God to be just, that debt has to be paid. A judge in a courtroom can't look at the guilty party and say, ah, don't worry about it. Yes, we know you committed, committed that crime, but you, need, you don't need to pay it back. You don't need to, there's no consequences, just go on your merry way. If you were sitting in that courtroom, you would say, that judge is not just. So how can God be the just and the justifier? Well, read Romans 3. Because even though he's the one that says, guilty, not guilty, and by our faith, he says, not guilty. But he's also the judge that stands up, takes off the robe, stands before us. And how can he be not guilty? Because he redeems us. He pays the price. He forgives our sins. So Ephesians 1, 7 says, in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. No other way that we're forgiven. No other way that we're reconciled. No other way that we're redeemed. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. I love this line. Forgiveness does not erase sin. And this is, this is good for our relationship with the Lord, but even with one another. Forgiveness does not erase sin. History cannot be changed, but forgiveness does erase the record of sin like a pardon, that our sin, our debt was paid and we were pardoned. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God is what Paul writes. We are pardoned. And so we hear all these terms about our salvation. And I love what uh, David writes in Psalm 51 after he knocked boots with Bathsheba and killed her husband and got her pregnant and married her. Yeah, that was, that was a horrible, evil sin. And he gets called out on it. And you know what he says? Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Sometimes we need to be restored in the joy of our salvation. That the problems and the distractions and the issues of the world can want to steal our joy of our salvation that this is something that we should study. Yes, we are saved, and I was saved a long time ago. Why, why keep talking about it? Because it's the greatest gift that we have. And a lot of people trip up and they say, well, how can God be this omnibenevolent, this all-loving God, and still be just and, and wrathful at the same time? Well, God is simple. It means there's no parts to him. He is a simple being, his essence. Kind of like, uh, think of a racquetball. Is it more round, rubbery, blue, or bouncy? Well, it's all of those things. Those are just different attributes of it. But you can't separate those. The moment you take the rubber from the racquetball, it ceases to be a racquetball. You take the blue away, it ceases to be that. So God is all these at the same time. 
Another uh, line that I love is that the same heat that melts wax hardens clay. That's who God is. He is the same. It's almost like if we were standing under a waterfall with an upside down cup. Obviously, the waterfall is who God is, the fullness of him. And you can't divide out his parts. He is the water. But if we have our cup upside down, the emptiness that we have, the emptiness comes from rejecting him. And a single, simple act of repentance, of just turning our cup, now we can start receiving the blessings that come from God. That's why I do not believe that God is going to pour out his wrath on believers. It's an impossibility. Why? Because it's the same waterfall. When we, we read Revelation, we hear about how God is going to pour out his wrath on the world, and we think, oh, are we going to be a part of that or not? We can't. Why? Because our cup, the cup of our heart, the cup of our soul, the cup of our life is turned right side up so that all these words, forgiveness, reconciliation, adoption, born again, mediation, uh, salvation, that's what we're receiving. But to the one that has their life rejecting God, yeah, there's an emptiness about it. And this morning is a beautiful morning to make sure that your cup is right side up because the Lord is the Lord. He is not changing. He's still in the driver's seat. Are you near him or are you far from him? Be reconciled to him. Be forgiven by him. Be redeemed by him. This is a work of God. Surrender, faith, that's not a work. That's surrendering. We just lay down our lives and we wave the white flag. And again, that simple act of just turning our cup. That's what repentance means. A lot of times we think of it in linear, that we change direction. It's the same thing. Simple act, just to repent, to change our life, to confess our sin, repent and accept the blessings that God has for us. Oh, great a salvation that we have. And just the depth of what this is, but then how simple God wants to apply it to our lives. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you will be saved. And so I don't do the whole like hand raising. There's nothing against that, nothing wrong with that. But this is a decision that you make in your heart, in your life, in your mind. Now, I highly encourage you, come and talk to one of us pastors and say, you know what? I've been walking my life too much like this. And I think today is the day that I want to turn and start receiving from the Lord instead of rejecting from the Lord because the emptiness is real. And he doesn't want that. He desires for all to be saved. He desires for all to be receiving the fullness of who he is. And so, Lord, we love you. We trust you. And any of us believers, Lord, that have made that decision at some point in our lives, if we've, if we've disconnected ourselves from you, if we've distanced ourselves from you, I pray that this morning we would approach you with a heart of reconciliation, of recommitment to you, knowing the fullness of our salvation. We thank you for this morning for a reminder of our salvation. That you have adopted us, you have redeemed us, You've restored us. You've reconciled us. And we know it's so much more. But I pray that we would rededicate our lives to you. And Lord, if there's anyone here 
that is still walking in life, rejecting you. I pray that you would work and move in their hearts, that instead of rejecting you, they would surrender to you, and they would start receiving from you, knowing first the gift of the Holy Spirit, and they would begin that process of sanctification, that by that that simple act of faith and repentance that they would be justified, but then they would start sanctification. Lord, I just pray that that would be somebody's testimony here this morning. And for all of us that continue to keep our eyes fixed upon you, give us strength. Just as David wrote, my cup overflows. Lord, overflow our lives with your peace, with your patience, with your kindness, with your mercy and with your love, with your truth, Lord. We thank you. We praise you for who you are and what you have done to redeem and to save us. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said...